Human beings have been afraid of the dark for a long time. The fact that humanity has largely vilified darkness is a product of a perfect storm. Some of this is a primal human evolutionary instinct that, you know, rightly avoided situations where we were vulnerable to attack from like, I don't know, a saber-toothed tiger, or also attack from rival tribes or clans. But there's also colonialism, which has then given birth to patriarchy, white supremacy, systems of thought that fear the unknown, the other, and seek to dominate and subdue what is mysterious. When you start pulling on that thread, it unravels back and back and back into ancient religious and philosophical frameworks. So in many ways, it's not surprising that this view has been so ingrained in us that we almost don't see that we're looking through lenses that are biased, not just toward light-loving language, but to the instinct to dominate, control, and subdue what we don't know. But all along, there have been voices, mystical voices in in every spiritual tradition, the prophets, the poets, if you want to call them that, who said, hold up, there is actually something really important about remaining humble toward what we don't know and embracing it embracing mystery, recognizing that language and the architecture of words is never going to capture the fullness of the human experience. But one of the most famous proponents of unknowing (laughs) mystical voices is 16th century Spanish mystic John of the Cross. John of the Cross declared that going through darkness and unknowing was a necessary process to our spiritual growth that there was not only not something wrong with you when you were in seasons of unknowing, but there was something actually very right. He called them the dark night of the soul. And a lot has been written about his descriptions of the dark nights. But I wanted to have this conversation with scholar, translator of the mystics, and mystical author herself, Mirabai Starr. Mirabai is one of the leading voices of the inner spiritual movement. She's written so many books, including God of Love, A Guide to the Heart of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. She's written Caravan of No Despair, which is a memoir of loss and transformation that will wreck you in the best possible way. And her most recent book, Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics, which I cannot recommend enough. So, without any further explanations or detailed historical dives, let's just get into this conversation on episode two of season one of Unknowing with Mirabai Star. So, Mirabai, welcome to Unknowing. You and I have known each other for 10 years, if you can believe that it's been that long. Um, We met at a gender reconciliation retreat with some other fun mischief makers. And I remember feeling like the preteen who got to sit next to the cool older teenager. And I was just like instantly your fangirl, both in the fluency between languages that you possess, but also the fluency between spiritual traditions. Um, But especially, especially because you were so fully embodied and fiercely feminine. (laughs) So I just want to say welcome to the show. And I wondered if we could get started with an exploration of the map that you were given 
and that you've traversed spiritually? Thank you, Brie, for asking. Gabriela, mi amor. I I really am honored to be, yeah, to be doing this with you as you bring this series of conversations to the world. So it's I felt the same way when I met you, by the way, like, oh my God, this woman is amazing. Can I sit next to her and just <laughs> absorb what she radiates? Uh, so very mutual there. You know, I I, I feel that um I've talked so much about my spiritual journey. And so I keep thinking that it's like nothing, but then I realized that how unusual it is. Cause every time I share it, people say, Oh, that was so validating. You mean you can do it that way. So what is that way that I do it? Um, so I grew up in the counterculture of the 1970s and my parents were, were um, non-religious kind of social justice oriented Jews, you know, in typical kind of East Coast Jewish intellectuals and artists who rejected organized religion of any kind. And yet they had this deep appreciation of spirituality. Like for my father, it was the Western esoteric traditions. He was a tarot card reader and, and he was just interested in these kind of, um, ancient wisdom systems that had been buried, right? And for my mother, it was an interest in Zen. And both of them were kind of drawn to all of the Eastern, so-called Eastern traditions, all the different branches of Buddhism and Hinduism, as long as it didn't get too organized and institutionalized and cultish, where, you know, they, their tolerance was pretty low. But as part of the counterculture, in addition to this kind of um, this kind of rejection of institutionalized religion, there was also um, in, in our community of Taos, New Mexico, Taos was a place, it was kind of um, a meeting place for many different spiritual traditions. It still is, by the way, but especially then. Lama Foundation is here, which is where Ramdas wrote Be Here Now. Uh, the iconic book that introduced many ways Eastern thought, Hinduism and Buddhism to a contemporary American audience. But Lama also brought in all of these teachers, um, Buddhist teachers, Sufi teachers. I, I was very influenced by the Sufi mystical traditions as a, as a young teenager. Uh, mystical Judaism, Christian mysticism, Tibetan Buddhism was was very important around here. And also we live in, in a place that's steeped in indigenous wisdom. The Taos Pueblo people have lived here continuously for at least, you know, 1200 years that we know of. So I was exposed to all of these things at a very young age. They were presented to me as being equally valid, equally true. And I have to say, I'm just having a realization in this moment, and having talked about this many times before, Brie, and that is that because my parents were anti-religion, were so um, suspicious of any kind of belief systems, codified belief systems, that opened us all, I think, to receiving the wisdom of multiple traditions. I never thought of those two things as going together as beautifully as they do. I think that's why I am the way I am, because they taught me to question everything. But in the process, my heart has remained open to what is is most true, I think, about, or let's say, what do I know about true? But 
most life-giving about each of these traditions. Somehow the very skepticism that's woven in, it comes with an openness as well. That seems so unusual. I mean, and it is unusual to have that kind of open-handed parenting, right? So many of us had the experience of receiving a really closed, like fully formed map belief system. And we were taught not to question it and to embrace it fully as reality. And so then we come to the crux of this experience later in our lives where we're like, man, the map that I was given for my belief system doesn't match my embodied experience or my this this deeper intuition that there has to be something bigger or more. And that seems to be connected with mysticism, as you said, right? The mystics are those who have gone beyond just belief systems and have had these profound experiences of oneness. But how do you relate your journey to, which was so open to the mystics, to your own mystical experiences? Hmm. Well, it it may be because you've opened this door to unknowing, Brie, that I... I'm relating everything to that today as we're having this conversation that my own most profound spiritual experiences happened in the midst of, of radical dismantling. So every time I think that I know something about the spiritual journey, some inner rebel in me just shakes it all up and turns it upside (laughs) down and lights it on fire. I cannot seem to rest in any sense of certainty about ultimate reality, God, the meaning of life, um, my relationship to the divine. And yet, paradoxically, it is in the midst of these experiences of disintegration that I experience at least moments of direct felt presence of something that transcends any description I could give it and yet looks and feels and smells and tastes like love. And it often happens in the midst of deep sorrow and profound loss. Hmm. It reminds me so much of where we find ourselves culturally in this moment. I mean, talk about a deep time of unknowing and ambiguity and having to let go of structured belief systems, ways in which our society has functioned previously that no longer works or we're no longer willing to um, be complicit in. And You've spoken at length and have taught and have translated the work of John of the Cross. And I wonder if you could share a little bit about who he was and what he describes as the dark night of the senses and the spirit, the dark night of the soul. And how maybe that could be a helpful frame for us to talk a little bit more about this weird chapter that we're in um, culturally, but also globally, what we're experiencing as human beings right now with all the changes in the pandemic and the necessary social reckoning that's taking place. Yeah, it's such a rich question right now, Brie. And, you know, people like Andrew Harvey and Matthew Fox and Carolyn Baker have been talking about a global collective dark night of the soul for years. 
I used to try to see it through that collective lens, that communal lens. And I had trouble because I was so connected to the individual transformational power of the dark night of the soul experience, which I'll talk about in a second. But right now, it's like I can't help but see the collective truth of this paradigm that, as you say, all of the structures we've been so attached to collectively, globally, as a human family are crumbling. And so there is this radical unknowing that's taking place in the collective. And it's very exciting to me because when you think about what John of the Cross was speaking about, the dark night of the soul is not just like having a hard time. You know, my my cat needs surgery and my boyfriend's cheating on me and, you know, all, all the different sort of litany of the human condition, the complaints of the human condition that any of us can engage in. They're not all just dark night of the soul experiences. They don't add up to that profound spiritual crisis that John of the Cross was speaking about. They're just experiences of being a human being. What John of the Cross is speaking of is a spiritual maturing. And when we're spiritually immature, he says, that's when we get very attached to the ways we think things are supposed to be. And we get, we, we're very proud about what a good meditator we are or <laughs> how well we can, we can articulate non-dual language and concepts and things like that but when we (laughs) right I mean like can we just take a quick second there because it's like how much of you know spirituality has become a brand these days of like this is the new hip brand of like you know how conscious I am and how integral I am and how you know what level of consciousness I am how much I can judge other people through that lens or how often I meditate and I mean I did that shit too I totally hopped on that bandwagon and got super excited about you know the new non-religion that I was part of called the contemplative path you know <laughs> so so in some ways it's so human, but I just love that that John of the Cross is saying, hold up, that's like 101. Yeah. Okay, keep going. <laughs> I love the way you articulate it, Brie. Um, so, so the dark night of the soul is a spiritual crisis. And as you say, it has two parts according to John of the Cross, but even that is like way more um, exact than, than he really means to be. But let's just take a look at those two elements of this dismantling experience of the dark night of the soul that is a mark of maturity. Having a dark night of the soul means that, what does he say in the beginning? That it's like we've been drinking from the divine breasts for a long time, and it's been very motivating and very comforting. You know, we've been doing, say, chanting kirtan in the Hindu tradition, or, you know, reading all of the beautiful spiritual texts out there, and And we've been on this journey and it's been very gratifying and exciting. We have opening experiences. Those are all the the breastfeeding moments that make us robust and keep us engaged, right? But eventually we need to stand on our own two spiritual feet and walk toward the divine um, and walk into into the unknowing and whatever happens to us when we when we enter that wilderness that profound sacred wilderness so the two aspects that he likes to talk about in dark night of the soul um this guy who's been dead for 500 years likes to talk about one (laughs) is the experience of 
sensory attachment. He calls it the Mm. night of sense. And that's when all of the ways that we're accustomed to feeling the presence of of the sacred start to dry up. He uses Mm. the word dryness and aridity a lot. So let's go back to chanting kirtan because that's one of my favorite things to do. For those of you who are not familiar with kirtan, it's the call and response chanting of the divine names in the Hindu tradition. And you can get very high doing this practice. (laughs) So you go to your kirtan group and nothing's happening. It's like you might as well be singing the, you know, the Coca-Cola commercial or something. It's just empty. And that emptiness is a sign, says John. I mean, it may look like depression, but it's it's something deeper than that because underlying this feeling of aridity, of dryness, of emptiness is a deeper kind of longing that you can't even name. That is an experience, he says, that most spiritual practitioners will go through at some point on their path where they, what they used to do to get high, which they thought is what they were doing to get to God no longer does it. They drop into this desert space. And it's good, he says, that's, it's good for us to, to do that. It's, that's, there's a rigor involved. There's a discipline of, of staying present with that aridity, with that emptiness, with that emptiness. Then he says, if you can stay with it, long enough for it to kind of release, you know, like when, when you have a physical pain and, and you can stay with it long enough, give it enough space and breath that it kind of lets up a little or your capacity to hold it opens. It's like that you stay with that discomfort and usually it will open up into a more spacious place that you can rest in and you can be okay with that aridity, with that emptiness. But he says for the spiritual adept, (laughs) The deeper, darker night is, and much rarer, he says, is which is a little bit um, elitist for my taste, but <laughs> is the night of spirit. And mm-hmm. that's the one I'm even more excited about because this is where I think we are collectively. That mm-hmm. is when all of our conceptual constructs come undone. All of our belief systems. You know, when you have those deep spiritual crises where a crisis of doubt where everything you've been taught to believe in, which has held up really well and and has adapted itself perhaps to the shape of your life and different phases of your life even. Yeah. You know, like even if you've left behind certain belief systems along the way, there is some kind of core faith maybe that you've carried into all of the growth and changes and experimentation perhaps, that you've gone through spiritually, but even that core faith dissolves in the fire of this deeper, darker night, the night of spirit, which can be truly harrowing and often doesn't... See, okay, this is the last thing I'll stop talking, but um, (laughs) the dark night of the soul, John of the Cross says, doesn't happen as a result of external experiences. In fact, it's often invisible to anyone who who's looking from the outside. It's so deeply personal and private that it's that it's invisible, even to the person going through it often. It's just like, what is happening here? I don't even know. I'm not, I can't even think about it. Um, but I think this is my reframe of the dark night of the soul. I feel that A, it can and often is connected to external circumstances. And B, it doesn't have to be private and invisible at all. In fact, if we can come together, if we can 
hold each other in this dismantling, that's the way we will birth through this constricted canal space that we're in right now that hurts that we're if we're being so squeezed you know and and we can't seem to carry the old with us into the new we're in a very liminal space right now we know that the old stuff isn't working collectively we know this but we really don't know what the new reality is going to be yet we know what we want it to be and we know what we want it not to be but we're not there we're in a liminal space. This is the holy space of the dark night of the soul. When we, our task is to surrender all of our ideas about how to fix it, or even <laughs> our idea that there's something broken. There's so much to dive into with that. It's so juicy because as you were describing it, and it's the first time that I that we've talked about John of the Cross so many times, I've heard his work described, but you have this way of making it such a profoundly natural process. Hmm. Even though it is a spiritual process, it's like, as you were talking about it, it's like, oh, this is, how many different ways have we experienced that type of process as human beings? Yeah. The, the old thing, is it dries up, and you can't even put your finger on why. And then there's an inner crumbling, an inner reckoning between you and this idea you had of you, <laughs> the, 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 the castle you built out of the identity of you that involved all these beliefs. And as that begins to crumble away, there's a terror of, holy shit, but like, what if there's nothing left of me when this whole process ends? And, you know, it strikes me that this is very similar to the creative process as well, because, you know, I think about times that I've been in the studio, I think about my songwriting process, and you have to enter into a state of completely surrendering and letting go of whatever it is you did before that worked, that people loved. You can't, you can't cater to that, because if you do, you're not really in the moment and you're not channeling the potential of what could be, right? You're catering to what was before. And you're not making room for the unimagined yet. And so, as I'm listening to you talk about this, um, and as we're as we're exploring this as a, a frame for a cultural dark night that we're in, in this past year, we really have been stripped away from so much of our ways of knowing. So many of the things that we attach importance to and identity to, our jobs even the ways we future cast and like to look forward to things to do. We like to kind of plan our lives and gauge where we are, especially those that are in my stage of life or younger, where it's like, I've got plans and goals and ambitions and I'm you know, <laughs> go do this thing and then this thing. And we have a way of creating a map for ourselves. And here we are in this year that has completely disrupted that map. Yeah. And so many of us have found like, that the normal ways of finding meaning don't work. And what would you say to those who are at the beginning of the dark night? Maybe perhaps not the, not the in-depth version of the spiritual dark night of really truly letting go of our constructs of the divine or our belief systems, but those who are just at the beginning where what was working for them or us in our lives no longer is. How do we learn to trust that deeper 
longing into moreness that can help us push into the courage of moving into unknown territory? Mm. Yeah, I guess the first thing is to cultivate some kind of fearlessness about not feeling gratified. That feeling of gratification isn't available in a dark night experience. Mm. And and we're so conditioned to feel certain things, like feel good, for instance, (laughs) feel full, feel... That would be nice. (laughs) Yeah. Feel a sense of meaning or purpose or or fullness, right? We, We eat to get full and we eat much more than we need often because we're hungry for something that lies underneath that that hunger. And so how do we be with our hunger? Here's what I do is I it's not just a fearlessness that I cultivate, it's a curiosity. So if I'm feeling this sense of aridity, dryness, emptiness, instead of racing around frantically trying to find the thing to to fill it, how about just becoming curious about what that hunger for something deeper feels like. So that's one thing. The other thing is that it's a paradox as all of the truths of the mystical life are. We cannot know what's happening and we also can hold some kind of trust in the process. So John of the Cross uses the analogy of a painter. He said it's like God, the Holy One, the Divine, is a master painter who wants to paint your portrait because you're so beautiful. Like, of course, she wants to paint you. And so she puts you on on the platform and she, so you just find a pose and then stay there and I will paint your portrait. I, the master artist, and you, the most beautiful creature I've ever seen. And so you sit for a while, very happy to do this for for your beloved. And after a while, you start thinking too much as you're (laughs) sitting there. There's nothing else to do. And you convince yourself that you're not doing enough to help. I mean, here is this master artist, and she has chosen you. And surely there must be some way you can contribute. And so you move. You strike a new pose and you say, you know, God, I've been sitting here thinking about it. And I think this is a much better look for me. Let's try (laughs) this one. And so God goes along with this for a while. And then she's just like, please, you know, Brie, just sit still and let me do my work because you've gotten to the point where we're no longer co-creating this. You're actually interfering with the masterpiece. So sit down and shut up and let me do it. And that is what we have to do. It's just mm. trust mm. that we're, this is happening because we're so beautiful and so appreciated by the beloved that this masterpiece is going to unfold if we can just let go of our control. I adore that image. And uh, <sighs> I can relate to the like, let me just, but like, why don't I just tweak the lighting just ever so slightly? You know what I, I was thinking, I think I need a, I need a, an outfit change. Don't you? Don't you, God, feel like this is like, I need a better kimono right now. Uh, <laughs> this trust thing <laughs> that you just mentioned is everything, both in the spiritual process, the creative process, in the healing process. The capacity to 
fall into what is next or what is new or what makes us uncomfortable, moving into that difficult yoga pose, being willing to have my whiteness confronted, being open to new ideas and new voices and making sure that I'm not at the center of that. All of these shifts that especially us as white folks are deeply in the middle of the important disruptive work that's happening. The fact that you bring up trust, it's like my whole body responded to you in that, like, oh yeah, trust. Mm. And you've done such incredible work around the reclamation of the feminine. In most of our, you know, leading religions, there's a predominantly patriarchal view of God and of what the path is and practices. And, you know, in, in your book, Wild Mercy, you describe different feminine archetypes and divine figures as a way of pulling out from the background, the, the patriarchy imposed background, right? A different image for God. And when you said trust, it was like, man, it felt so feminine to hear you say that because it felt like a softening came over my body. And that is a very, um, you know, I, I can tell in my body when I'm, when I'm braced and I can tell when I'm trusting in both of those states, it's the body that gives it away. Because I can say, yeah, yeah, no, I trust this. This is totally fine. And my whole body can just be totally tensed up, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally trust that producer. It's cool. It's cool that you're taking three extra weeks with my album and you said you would have it done, but it's not done and it's totally fine. No, it's fine. I totally trust you. Yeah, I'm fine about it. You know, and you're not really. And so would you give us a sense for the, the necessary work of bringing the body into the equation of practice and in how we think about the dark night. Yeah, I don't even know how to separate them. Uh, for me, the body is so integrated and my woman's body is so integrated with my spiritual path that it's difficult for me to talk about how to engage the body. My, ch my task is how would I, if I were ever asked to, how could I possibly disengage? the body from my spiritual life. But I do admit that all of the spiritual traditions that I have studied and practiced and encountered and been transformed by have deep patriarchal roots that I have had to pull up. Um, and it's, you know, it took me a while to realize that all of these seemingly alternative spiritual paths that I was on were not alternatives to the masculine paradigm. All of the scriptures in each of these traditions were written by and for men. All of the heroes. And same thing in the world of social justice that I've been part of. When people talk about the great nonviolent leaders, who do they talk about? They talk about Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, you know, occasionally we'll throw in a Rosa Parks but or somebody else, but um, Cesar Chavez. So in the social justice arena and in the, the seemingly alternative spiritual spaces, it's, it's still very much dominated by men and by systems that they've come up with, you know, great architectural cosmic designs. And so 
when I'm with other women on a spiritual path, there is often this inclination. I shouldn't just say men and women because it, I, I'm speaking of the feminine in people of all genders. And I'm speaking about the thirst for a feminine embodied way of navigating spiritual life for people of all genders. But there is a way in which I have noticed that women together on a spiritual path go to a much more embodied spaces. You know, just that's that's what we're hungry for. It's what gives meaning. That's why a purely contemplative kind of path, a pure meditation practice, although there are many women who are masters of meditation and teachers of meditation, but that pure sitting practice often feels kind of alien to the female experience. You know, it feels like I need to get that over with so that I can get back to doing what I need to do. Right, right. And for me, the last thing I would say is just being in nature and being Mm -hmm. physical every single day is really important. There's There was a big snowstorm this morning. And the first thing that my beloved and I wanted to do was to go out in it and walk for an hour trudging through the snow. And sometimes it was blizzarding in our faces. Other times the sun was coming out. We're in Northern New Mexico where that it's very, the weather's very dramatic, but that is where I find my sacred connection is Mm. in the wild spaces. Mm. That's very embodied. It's a very embodied spiritual experience. It seems as if what you're inviting us into is that, you know, if we think about these moments of unknowing, whether they be personal or collective, and I say moments loosely, right? Because we're going to be in a long one. <laughs> this is this is it's going to take a minute. I am imagining us in a fog, <laughs> and suddenly we can't see the horizon of our own becoming, and the things that we attach to that becoming. And so, what what you're inviting us into is to find our sea legs in that. And I think about like, okay, what do I need to do when I can't see the horizon? Like, I'm talking as if I have a tremendous amount of experience being on boats and water, which I don't, but but we'll go with it. But like, I'm imagining if I'm on the water and I can't see the horizon, I need to bend my knees. (laughs) I need to soften my stance. I need to be in my core. (laughs) I have to be able to move with the waves, even though I can't see them coming. And you name the fact that because these most of our spiritual traditions are so patriarchal, we have a tendency of over-preferencing rationality, the rational. Yes. And the what I've been calling on this podcast the map maker, you know, the map making instinct. It's just to lay out these these beautiful architectures of of meaning and constructs, like like blueprints, you know, and as you said, but it's in, in seasons where there is this kind of unknowing or in the creative process, that kind of mind, the rational mind, doesn't work. That's right. It's actually what gets us stuck and in the way, and it's what makes us panic and our knees lock, is when we go into that rational space of, but I don't know what's happening, but I don't have a map for this, but wait, I don't know if I'm doing the quote-unquote right thing because I don't have a spiritual teacher approving of this. Like, How do I learn how to trust my own body's experience? Okay, that's so beautiful. That that um, is a beautiful illustration of the paradox that is inherent in the mystical way. Hmm. So for instance, 
we are um, conditioned to see the world as some kind of mechanism. And if we perceive it mechanistically, we will see what is broken about it. And we will think that there's got to be a solution we can engineer to repair it. So that kind of way of approaching this beautiful broken world needs to be released. And that's really hard when you're talking culturally or collectively, because there are definitely solutions that need to be engineered for some of our most intractable environmental and social problems, no doubt. But there is a time for a collective releasing of all the impulses to fill the emptiness or fix the brokenness. And on the other hand, because it's the mystical path and it's paradoxical, there is this teaching in Judaism, mystical Judaism called tikkun olam, right? Tikkun olam. Tikkun means to fix or to repair or to mend. And olam is world. So this world mending call, it's a prophetic kind of call to all of us to do whatever we can to mend the torn fabric of, of this world. And so every act of kindness, chesed, loving kindness, every act of tzedakah, which is generosity or, um, yeah, charity, but that's not really good, a good word. Um, all of these things, righteousness, gevora, all of these things uh, lift up the shards of light that, that they speak about in, the, in this sort of cosmic shattering and remake the world. And yes, that's what we're all supposed to do. We are all supposed to reweave the, the torn world. So on the one hand, stop trying to fix it. It ain't broke. And on the other hand, everything that you do from a place of love to mend mm. this world makes a difference. Mm. How do we hold those seemingly contradictory propositions, which are not ultimately contradictory at all, in a vast enough container that they both can be true? I think the feminine heart, again, in people of all genders, has plenty of room for those two realities to coexist. Well, it seems, too, that, you know, there's a huge difference between mend and impose your own idea of how to solve this. <laughs> yeah. What a, you know there's there's a difference between love and you know come at this with your with your white authority and be the voice in the room who's who knows what's best. That's right. Um and and the softness with which you speak about that mend the torn fabric of this world. You know, I think about love and relationships. You know, when you are with a beloved or a partner or a lover, and they're hurting. <laughs> the worst fucking thing you can do is be like, you know what you need to do? <laughs> Let me tell you what's happening in your life. I actually, <laughs> I had a guy mansplain to me my own thoughts the other day <laughs> on a dating app, no less. <laughs> oh, and I was like, you. I was like, and delete. <laughs> but it was that sense of like, yeah, that's not, that's not, that is not, that's not the nature of love. Love is willing to sit in the discomfort of not knowing how to make it better. Yeah. But I am willing to be brokenhearted with you mm. because that is actually going to mend something. That's right. So I'm thinking about the relationship between unknowing and vulnerability and 
being brokenhearted. As we turn the corner here and begin to wrap up this conversation, you've written so profoundly and extensively on grief. And one of the things that I'm aware of during this time, Mirabai, is how many people are unwilling to be with their grief, Hmm. to be with their bodily grief of the changes we've been through, of the losses we've had, um, the incalculable amount of deaths that we've experienced of loved ones through COVID, the violence and racism that continues to radiate out in traumatic waves in our country. And, you know, as we record this, it wasn't that long ago that the inauguration of Joe Biden happened. And um, I was sitting there with my kids watching it. And it was like minute one started <laughs> and I fell apart. I mean, I it was like full body sobbing and my sweet boys wrapped their arms around me. You know, Rowan grabbed my head and Soren put his arm on my shoulder and started rubbing my back. Mm. And he just kept saying, it's okay, mama, let it all out. <laughs> let it all out. <laughs> He's like, it's a really big day. Lots has happened. It's okay. You can let it out. Wow. And I'm sitting there being comforted by my own kids but I felt my like my whole body was feeling the grief even the unacknowledged the unknown grief that I was carrying in my body so I wonder if you would talk to us a little bit about the vulnerability of unknowing in the midst of grieving Mm. that was a very beautiful and profound little story you just told and made me cry Yeah, just to add, because it is so poignant and because you're you and I'm going to spill my guts to you as if we weren't recording this. <laughs> but uh, the previous week, it had hit me that I had, hadn't been held in a year wow. by an adult, right? Like it's different when you're, a, when you're a, a, a mom and you hold your kids. It's like it's a different kind of thing. But I hadn't been held in over a year. And it kind of hit me the previous week before the inauguration. I had a really tough parenting day. And Soren was, my 11-year-old was acting up and I fell apart on the stairs and just sobbed and I pushed my whole body up against the wall because I was just like, I just, I just, I need something to hold me right now. Can you, house, house, can you step in? Can you just hold me? But then, you know, the power of one week later, my two little creatures wrapping their arms around Mm me and holding me, it wasn't lost on me that there was a universe a reciprocity in that moment of the universe saying like, I got you, <laughs> you're going to get through this. So beautiful. Well, the vulnerability is a delicious word and I'm glad you're using it. I think that is probably one of the, that this is what distinguishes the classic John of the Cross, dark night of the soul, austere, rigorous, painful, difficult, but necessary spiritual paradigm from a more female or feminine embodied tender version of the dark night of the soul. This is where actually John of the Cross circumstances can be the catalyst for a true transformational spiritual experience that you call dark night of the soul. So for me, as you know, and and some of you listening do and some don't, um, I had a very common human experience, which unfortunately very common, which is losing a child. 
Maybe some of you have. Uh, my 14-year-old daughter was killed in a car accident in 2001. And that was, even though I'd been on a spiritual path for a very long time, since I was 14, really, and I was 40, that was the beginning of a deeper, slower, quieter, but profound coming undone of everything that I had relied on to steer me through my life and through my spiritual practice, my relationship with the divine. All of it went up in flames in that fire of loss, of, of trauma and tragedy, of bearing the unbearable. So you can't get much more vulnerable than that, right? That no, There's nothing that feels safe and okay about an experience like that. So it is it is a, an experience of radical vulnerability and also deep tenderness. I recognized in the midst of that wreckage that I belong to the human family in a way that I had never even felt before. So even at the same time that I felt so alone, I felt so held and connected to this in this net, I called it the net of mothers, because that's how I saw it. All the mothers who had ever lost a child, I belonged to them and they belong to me. And the tenderness of that experience of being so stripped that there was nothing that, that stood between me and that deeply human experience of love and loss and love. <laughs> um, so that vulnerability was the doorway for me to a much deeper connectedness that has never left me. And it also increased my capacity, I would say, for wonder, for almost like a childlike radical awe and wonderment in the face of just the immense beauty and mystery of this life. Mirabai, that's, um, you know, like, like all profoundly beautiful things. It's like, um, it's awe-inspiring and heartbreaking all at once, you know. And uh, yeah, somewhere along the way, we were told or we believed that that pain um, w- would not, you know, like that we could avoid this thing called pain. <laughs> and so we we try as much as we can to avoid it. And I'm not talking about you know, you know, masochistic embrace of pain in an unhealthy way. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the natural unbearable weight of being and um, heartbreaking experiences like the one that you have lived through, that so many mothers have lived through. I'm thinking about the fact that if we can be present to you in our bodies, if we can stay with this heartbreak, that it does open us up to mystery and to this unknowing, tender place of, like you said, awe and wonder Um, when you look at a painting, sometimes it's so beautiful, it hurts. Like you say that it's so beautiful, it hurts. And I recently had a friend of mine who is going through, you know, just a terrible heartbreak and she's in her early twenties. And, uh, she, she sent me a quote by Rumi. Some, you would know what it was. It was something, and I'll probably edit it in, but it was something like, uh, you know, something about asking, not asking heartbreak to go away or something like that. Mm. And she's like, what do you think he means by that? Like kind of outraged. Like I want to get over this heartbreak. And I said, no, no, no. I was like, babe, here's the thing. 
when our hearts are broken, we open up to the deepest connection of all. So in the midst of that heartbreak, you know, ask it to stay, befriend it, because this is the teacher that will allow us to access this deep web of love, will allow us to see that even when we can't see, we're held by a net of connectivity and hope and creativity, you know, that something is being made out of all of this. Even if we don't understand it, like you said, the painter's painting, you're like, but I can't see the painting. Well, yeah, that's the idea. (laughs) You know, we can't see what's being woven in and through us in our own personal heartbreaks or our collective societal heartbreak. But without that experience of, of sitting with and befriending the raw vulnerability of not knowing, could there ever be something new? I mean, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> the premise of this whole enterprise on this podcast is to talk about this, but you, you fill me with such a sense of kindness, loving kindness toward the process of heartbreak and not knowing. Mm. You've invited us into our bodies in the midst of the dark night of the soul. So I guess to close, I want to ask what, I, what I'm asking everybody is, what are you being invited to unknow right now? Mm. Yeah, that's, that's an easy one because it's so up for me. And it has to do with what you spoke about earlier about being confronted about your whiteness. Mm. Is my white supremacy, my white privilege, um, my racism... And I've been on that train for a long time, you know, and making an effort to really grapple with deep underlying shadow of white privilege in my life and in all the white spiritual spaces in which I find myself. And yet it's new and new again. I keep being taken down to my knees over and over again, thinking again that I've got it figured out. And my personal dark night of the soul around racism is prolonged and profound. Uh, I keep getting to look at the ways that I am perpetuating systems and structures that oppress and marginalize a huge swath of humanity and benefit me. So that is what is up for me, especially related to the white contemplative uh, spiritual world that I inhabit. So I'm really, I'm trying to bust it wherever I can, starting with myself. And I'm very awkward with it, which is partly why I know that I have so much work to do. Because I could talk about the mystics all day long. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila, Mirabai, my namesake, Rabia, the Sufi ecstatic. This is the, that's the place I'm comfortable. But that's not where the growth and awakening is happening. It's happening in the arena of of anti-racism work in myself and Mm -hmm. in my communities. Absolutely. And I'm thinking about how, as you said, the awkwardness and the discomfort of really facing that in ourselves. It's like, even that requires a reframe because I can tell with with that work within myself, I'm like, I just want to get there so that I can get this right. Yes, (laughs) And it's like, (laughs) you're like, oh, no, honey, no, this is a lifelong 
experience of being willing to get it wrong yeah. so that I can learn. <laughs> yeah. And being willing to face that I'm getting it wrong so that I can learn. And isn't that the same damn thing we've been talking about? Because that's yeah. vulnerability. That's unknowing. That's me being willing to be permeable to others so that I can grow and be um, be more, more loving and uh, reflect the kind of societies we want to build. Like, we're not going to get to that without the awkwardness of facing our complicity in a day-to-day -day way. So it's like, I kind of have to get it out of my head that I'm ever going to get there. <laughs> Just embrace that this is a lifelong journey and be committed to doing it daily. That's right. Totally. It's the, that is the collective dark night, especially for white people. I, uh, I adore you, Mirabai. You are, uh, you're such a gift, not just to me. I mean, it's selfishly, I, I still can't believe that you're in my life and that I get to have you as my fairy godmother whenever I'm going through shit. But I mean, broadly, in, in the realm of spirituality, your voice is bringing us to a whole new frontier of unknowing. And for all the ways that you're blazing that trail into the not yet, but maybe, I just want to say thank you so much. Mm, that's so beautiful. Thank you. I feel the, the same way. I'm in the presence of someone who's shifting the global paradigm and mm -hmm. in very loving and smart and uh, vast seeing big thinking ways. So big hearted ways. So thank you, Brie, for inviting me and thank you all for, for um, showing up. Okay, we're moving away from clinging to the maps. We're learning how to trust our inner experience. This is the part of the show where I talk about the takeaways from this conversation, the things that can be added to your inner compass, the things that I'm adding to mine. There are so many, it's really actually super difficult for me to pick right now. <laughs> I'll start with uh, her observation that it's when we're spiritually or personally immature that we cling to form and certainty. So maturity is the ability to hold paradox, mystery. When we're going through these difficulties, it's actually a growth process through which we can become humble to the formless. We can become curious about what we don't know. In so many ways, Mirabai was underscoring the fact that going through seasons of unknowing is a good thing. It is a good thing, even though it's so uncomfortable. Next, True North Wisdom, Mirabai's reframe when she said, it's not just a personal or individual process, by the way. She says, what if we could admit to each other that we were all going through dark nights and collectively see what was happening as a communal birth canal into a new way of being as a society? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I'm going through a hard time, I immediately think that there's something wrong with me that I've screwed up, that I've made the wrong choice because my life isn't Instagram worthy. But what if these dark nights are not just personal, as Mirabai said, they are personal and unique, yes, and they may also be indicating collective frustrations that are pointing toward the necessity for a social change to happen. There's also that. If you're a young mom, you might be going through one of the hardest seasons of your life, not just because, yes, it is very difficult, but also because the systems around us are not designed to support young women who are mothers. Just saying. 
The personal is political. Next, True North Wisdom, when Mirabai talked about finding her sacred connection in nature, in the wild spaces. As a practice, I can't think of anything better to recommend to folks who are in the midst of unknowing than being in nature, being in the spaces where there is communal reciprocity that doesn't have to communicate in rational language. (laughs) When you are in nature and you can feel yourself as part of a web of belonging and becoming, and you don't have to explain yourself or explain what's happening, you can just be held. That is a sacred practice. Taking that with me. That's it for this episode. If you found this conversation helpful or meaningful, please consider rating the show or share it with a friend. You can also join the community of patrons who make this podcast possible. To learn more or for some resources on this path of creative possibility, visit unknowing.org. This music was brought to you by Avila, band, duo that I'm a part of. You can find this song. It's called Some Understanding. Download it wherever you get your music. And remember, as Rilke says, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. I'm trying to.